Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is very exciting. It is about diet and cancer. Diet and cancer. This is a podcast that you really want to listen to because it is one of the most common questions that is being asked not only by patients, but also by family members, as well as by physicians and oncologists alike. And uh, for that, I'm really honored to uh, host Dr. Irvi Shah, who is an assistant attending physician at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. She actually is interested in multiple myeloma, but uh, more importantly, the topic of today's podcast about modifiable risk factor for patients Uh, especially dietary interventions. Uh, You should follow Dr. Shah on Twitter at Irvi Shah, MD. She posts a lot of her work as well as other people's work that look at diet and cancer. I hosted Dr. Shah last year on Healthcare Unfiltered where we talked about her JAMA Oncology paper looking at the association of plant-based diet and the risk of cancer. And we are bringing her back again on today's podcast to talk a little bit some more about diet and cancer. A lot of things are going on in the field of diet and cancer. And I do think really it's important to investigate this. I think there's uh, there are folks who are completely against this type of research uh, uh, because of lots of confounding factors, understandably. I mean, how can you really tell somebody to adhere to a specific diet and then look at the risk and association between that diet and cancer. At the same time, it is hard to believe that any patient who gets diagnosed with cancer won't really try to look and investigate what can they do differently to minimize the risk of getting the cancer worse, or if there's a healthy individual that would want to do something to minimize the risk of developing cancer. And Dr. Irvi Shah has done a lot of research in that arena, and she is going to share her research with us, and I'm very proud to host her on Healthcare Unfiltered. What's also important is Dr. Shah was at some point a patient. She was diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma, and she received appropriate therapy, and she is doing very well currently and thankfully. But her experience as a patient sheds a lot of light into what patients go through and the things that really matters to them. So really a pleasure to have Dr. Irvi Shah from Memorial Sloan Kettering on Healthcare Unfiltered, talking everything diets and cancers. And before I air the podcast that we taped, me and Dr. Shah actually on Monday, Memorial Day 2023, I need to plug the show and ask you to please find the show anywhere you consume podcasts. Do not forget to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review. By doing so, you're going to find, you're going to help this podcast be uh, found by other folks who are interested in healthcare types podcasts. As you know, this podcast is all about the guests, is all about the patients, and is all about the folks who are coming in to be provided a platform to help everyone affected by cancer. Every so often, we do something that is completely not healthcare-related. As you know, I taped a podcast about Queen Elizabeth and the legacy of Queen Elizabeth with the British citizens. So sometimes we actually go rogue against healthcare and talk about something completely different. Also, also check out my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Find me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or Instagram, Chadi underscore healthcare unfiltered. Do not forget to check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. This book depicts the first three trials against Monsanto and their herbicide product Roundup that has been linked to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I was a testifying expert witness in these first three litigation trials The book describes the story of these three phenomenal trials that were against Monsanto. Johnson against Monsanto, Hardiman against Monsanto, and the Piliads against Monsanto. Check out the book and don't forget to leave a review on Amazon or on Goodreads. Without further ado, Dr. Irvi Shah on Healthcare Unfiltered, discussing all things diets and cancer. Irvi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. 
Thank you again, Shadi. Great to be here and uh, appreciate the invitation. And happy birthday. I Thank mean, you I, again. I would sing for you, by the way, but I think <laughs> no. once once I start singing, it's very possible folks will just tune off the <laughs> podcast. But happy birthday to you. There you go. That's what you get. Wow, that's great. Better than I would do. So thank you. So let's start with a little bit of an intro in terms of where you are, what you do. And and um, I think you have a very interesting and inspiring story, uh, frankly, but just for folks who probably don't know much, if you want to just tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So I'm a hematologist and oncologist on the myeloma service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. My interests are in modifiable risk factors. So I, I am 20% clinical and 80, 75%, 80% research, but I'm... I do mainly clinical trials and also collaborative translational research in understanding modifiable risk factors such as obesity, diet, diabetes, and the microbiome and its effect on cancer. And since I mainly practice in the myeloma space, I, I've used that as a um, model to basically study it or the place where most of my research goes into plasma cell disorders. My interest in this topic started... Um, actually just in fellowship. So in fellowship, um, I actually in 2016, which was the end of my first year of fellowship, I ended up being diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And that experience of mine where I had friends and family members telling me, oh, why don't you eat this or this food or this supplement is good for cancer, made me think and realize that us as physicians in internal medicine or even oncology really don't get taught about nutrition, but this is front and center for patients and family members because it allows them to be empowered to at least take some things in their control. And uh, because we don't hear about this research, we assume that there isn't much and that we should be uh, th that, you know, whatever patients want to do, they can, but it's really not significant or consequential. So we don't really spend much time in our clinic talking to patients. And our focus is always on eat whatever you like, because we feel that if we tell them what to eat, then we are either restricting them or making them guilty about what they're doing. And we think that it may be negative. So that's, I think, what the experience has seen with most oncologists and their beliefs around it. I think that's changing, however, now, and it's changing on multiple fronts and reasons, because one is we are, you know, I think in cancer and oncology, we've had different um, evolutions of how it's been treated, right? We've had initially the cytotoxic chemotherapy, and then we've had the era of immunotherapy. And uh, before immunotherapy, we had genomics, so like targeted therapies. And I think now the next frontier in terms of these phases of treatment is going to be microbiome therapeutics or uh, looking at how we can modify the microbiome. And I think with that, diet is the most powerful way or tool that we have that's modifiable and a low-risk way to modify the microbiome. And so I think there's much more interest and focus around diet now where there wasn't before because we didn't really have good ways to study it. So with that interest, after my cancer diagnosis, I, I felt like, yes, I'd want to study this more. So I, you, as a hobby, I started reading up on you know topics around nutrition just to understand it and realize there's a wealth of information that we really don't um, hear about mainstream. And then I, I had seen like there are a lot of interesting you know interventional dietary trials in cardiovascular disease, endocrinology, um, other diabetes, things like that. But I realized that in oncology we have interventional trials, but it's very limited the number that we've done and the way it can be done because clinical endpoints in cancer to study them are hard. And in heme malignancies, it's another a ball game where there's very little information. And th that was rightly so maybe 10 years ago or even 15 years ago when there was so little to treat patients with. So survival was low. And in that time, like, you know, you're just trying to get patients through therapy. They have so many side effects to therapy and all of that. But I think things have changed now where patients actually live long. Many patients are cured from their disease and they're living a longer life. And so with all of that, I think there is much more of 
a need and an emphasis to improve outcomes, help patients live better and uh, live in a more positive manner. And so I wanted to focus on doing, you know, some trials like that, but I really didn't see a path of how to do it in fellowship as I didn't have direct mentorship on that topic. And I was working on things in adult T-cell leukemia, lymphoma with genomics, epigenetics, and things like that. And then when I came to Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center as an immunotherapy fellow, I focused on CAR T-cells and immunotherapy and epigenetics. But I was also doing a microbiome project with Dr. Alex Lisokin, who was studying the microbiome. And I said, could we also study diet with this? Because, you know, that's a uh, a common question. So he, he was uh, gracious enough to say, yeah, go ahead and, you know, study it with in this population if you're interested. And so that's how it started, where we sent out a survey to patients on that project and you know we started seeing interesting data and one and then i said i want to do a pilot study interventional with uh, my chief at that time dr ola langren and he was like yeah if, if that's what you want to do go ahead and so that project then led to further studies and trials and now we have four interventional dietary trials ongoing and it's become mainly my full-time focus of research and i've moved away from doing you know, uh, CAR T cell uh, research. And it's amazing, like really amazing story. And I got to tell you, I mean, one of the reasons sometimes there's not a lot of research on it, it's not just face it, it's just a little bit more, quote unquote, innovative and, and sexy to do this new drug. And right, I mean, that gets you oh, on sure. the podium on the plenary session. And 100% right. Actually, when I was thinking of doing this, I had some colleagues or friends tell me, are you sure you want yeah. to make a career in this? Because it's not going to be the high impact paper. It's not going to be the oral presentations. You know, this is not an easy. It's a reverse incentive. But, you know, there's a lot of things that are very small that have significant benefit. And one of your, uh, I don't know if you were at Memorial at the time, Ethan Bach was at Memorial. He's at University of North Carolina now. If you recall, he did the patient reported outcomes in patients with metastatic solid tumors and it showed improvement in overall survival. And yeah. it wasn't a drug. It was simply that the patients are advocates for their own symptoms. And um, sometimes a lot of this um, gets forgotten, especially with you, I mean, starting fresh, obviously, career-wise. Uh, a lot of folks are saying, well, you want this high-impact paper. Like once you're a full professor, in essence, now you could do whatever you want, but, but to get there. But I can tell you, what you're doing is very important. It is critical to patient care. And, and nobody knows this more than you because you were a patient. So you have the, uh, again, you were there and you, under, you, you have the patient's voice. So uh, it's great. So um, my first question to you just in general, Irvi, is I know that you're um, using myeloma as a prototype for your studies in diet and cancer. Whatever findings, we'll go over some of the findings, but when you have a finding, is that scalable to other cancers or you feel that it will be specific to that tumor? So if you find whatever you find in myeloma, are you able to extrapolate and say these findings translate into lymphoma, breast cancer, whatever other diseases? Great question. And I think the answer lies somewhere in between. I think that um, there are some nuances in terms of how we treat patients or, you know, what might be right, depending on side effects and symptoms related to therapy. But I think that when we think about um, diet or interventions that are modifiable in three parts, in the prevention, in the treatment, and the survivorship setting, um, if you think about the prevention, the American Institute of Cancer Research it talks about how there are 10 guidelines for cancer prevention. And out of those 10, six out of the 10 are related to diet. And so when you think about diet and microbiome or even just diet and these modifiable risk factors, if it, you, it's hard to say like, okay, you do this diet for this cancer, but it, you do this different diet for this cancer. So it's going to be very different and you're going to tell patients. So I'm of the opinion and while it's more interesting to say like, you know, this is what's unique to this cancer and that, like I, I understand we need to study pathways, but there is a general overall what's best for patients in terms of health. So if we say like, oh, this diet is good for cardiovascular disease, but it's bad for cancer. And this diet is good for myeloma, but it's bad for lymphoma. Um, what we're doing is we're 
fragmenting things out into a way that is not really physiologic or even something that patients can do and it's more confusing in overall sense So while I think that there may be a role to say like, okay, maybe this certain uh, nutrient plays a bigger role in a particular cancer or a supplement plays a particular role in another cancer. I think overall dietary patterns that help one cancer are likely to be helping other cancers. And you can see that with population studies that have looked at what are dietary patterns associated with reduced cancer risk and and, uh, what what is reduces the likelihood of developing secondary cancers or things like that. So in the treatment setting, maybe we have to be a little bit more um, uh, aligned to what the cancer is and the treatment and be a little bit more individualized. But I think when we're thinking about just broad strokes of prevention, I think there is general dietary patterns that work. With precision nutrition that's coming in where you know each person's individual microbiome and individual body habit and things like that, I think there may be some role for a little bit of changes where we say like some foods like, you know, for instance, dairy and Asians have more uh, side effects because they're more intolerant to it. There may be certain foods that some populations just don't overall handle. But I think in the bucket of what's most healthy versus least healthy kind of will remain stable or similar for everybody. So let's start by sharing with us several observation from your research over the past couple of years that you found important under the umbrella of diet and cancer, because there are many voices out there that would challenge these findings. And they say, look, there are many confounding factors in your findings. You're depriving patients with cancer from enjoying food and in you know i just tell my patients eat whatever you want and enjoy whatever you want but they were never patients you were a patient you received chemotherapy you were diagnosed with cancer it is important to understand the patient's voice and i think it's much easier in my opinion to pontificate when you're not diagnosed and you're healthy and feeling well than when you are and you're trying to find whatever works for you so i am with you in terms of finding that happy balance, but I would like to understand what these are findings, because I do think it's important to recognize the shortcomings and hopefully we can find that happy medium. So give me maybe your top three to five things or elements that you found through your research and the data behind them. Let's start with number one. So one is when we look at dietary patterns and cancer, there are three large population studies, one from the UK, one from USA, and one from uh, France. And each of them had 60 to 70,000 individuals in it. And then they asked them to fill out dietary surveys calculated their dietary patterns and said, is this person eating? Each of the studies did different things. So one study did a plant-based dietary score saying who ate like giving this a score based on how much plant food you eat. So more plant foods, a higher score, less plant foods, a lower score. Another study divided patients into uh, vegans, vegetarians, seafood eaters, and meat eaters. And the third study was also similar. I think it was vegans, vegetarians, and meat eaters. Um, but what what you can see is that each study did it slightly differently, but all three of those studies um, showed that there was about a 15% reduction in risk of cancer for more plant food intake. And it, it was about similar, maybe 20% in one, 15% in one. But but you can see that there are three studies showing very similar findings. And these are just- So, so these were healthy individuals and we're just followed. serving them? Yeah. Cohort prospective study, got it, okay. And, and again, these are just three that I'm talking about, but there are many like this. And what you can see is that um, more plant food intake was associated with reduced cancer risk. Now you could say that, okay, maybe these people also had healthy lifestyles and maybe they were following other things and maybe that's why it is. And that may be right. But um, when once, if, if we had differing findings between all studies, also it's questionable. But when multiple studies keep showing you the same thing, I think it's harder to ignore or say that it's all due to you know chance or things. And the pat- you, it's important to look at the pattern of what they are showing. So that's one thing with you know epidemiologic or population studies. Um, I think in oncology, as oncologists, we are looking for interventional trials because that's what we do with drug trials, right? We want to see the PFS difference. We want to see the OS difference. 
and to do dietary studies with PFS and OS difference are, are difficult to do because there is some inherent um, difficulties with, you know, in, in enrolling a population that keeps that diet going for a long period of time to see the changes because it, you, you, you can't just see a PFS or OS difference unless they, you're following patients for long enough. And so that can be the challenge sometimes with doing interventional studies where uh, even if you intervene in 100 patients, maybe the compliance rate is 50%. So already that there you've lost some of the power. And then if the 50%, maybe 50% were compliant for one year, but then at five years, maybe it was 25%, then you've lost that long-term effect. So it becomes harder to study these things in terms of large population scale, uh, scale studies, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't attempt to do them or try to do them. It's just that the bar to get positive results with those kind of studies are high and they're very tough and challenging. So it's very difficult to do a randomized controlled trial, right? That's what you're saying. Like you can't really randomize folks to diet A versus diet B because it's very difficult to comply. You can, uh, but it's difficult to comply because also patients who want to go on that study are already maybe like, okay, I want to see what diet can do. I'm interested in this topic. And then when you tell them, don't change your anything for the rest of your life compared to you, the ones who you're telling like, okay, you eat all of this. They're hearing what the, the intervention is doing and go like, okay, maybe I should just eat more fruits. Right. and vegetables. So there's that placebo effect where they're already starting to do it. And so it becomes a little hard to have a fully randomized control trial where one inter one group is really not doing anything. And it's also not possible to have patients on the study and say like, okay, we're not going to do anything for you, but you stay on the study. So we have to give them basic nutrition counseling or something and say that's the standard of care. But that's not even really the true standard of care because the true standard of care is we do nothing. But in a trial, often the control arm is getting some- um, But it's also, it's also difficult protein. to know if the folks comply. Like, you know, whatever you actually tell them to do, I mean, you're not going to really have a- a monitor, a camera at home. I, like, I don't know even how you, you're just really taking, yeah. I mean, it's similar to the survey you described. You're taking the face value of the questionnaire answers. But in so, these three studies you mentioned, UK, USA, and France, you said 15% reduction in all cause mortality or there are specific cancers that we saw? Overall cancer risk. Risk overall to develop cancer. cancer. Okay. Because Any these are cancer. healthy people before cancer diagnosis, and then they looked at, who developed cancer based on their dietary patterns. And the, those who had more plant-based diets had less cancer just overall. Now, of course, there could be somebody who is you know, a plant-based eater who develops cancer or it could be vice versa. And we always see these rare individual like situations, but we're thinking about more in terms of population or in terms of right. the majority right. of people right. make changes. Right, that's great. Okay, let's go over finding number two. I think number two was looking at how dietary intervention trials can be challenging to interpret because of these issues. And so what, what pushback do you get? I mean, like, you know, when, when you tell people about this and, and you tell them dietary interventions are tough to do, I mean, this is the best evidence that we have. You know, I guess the skeptics or folks who challenge you, what are the point, what are the counterpoints they bring to you? One is that, okay, if you're powering a study to a biomarker endpoint, that doesn't mean anything because it's not a clinical endpoint. What do we do with a biomarker endpoint in a trial? And I get that. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that that's the end to all our research and we should stop at a biomarker design. But I think people who say that fail to understand how trials are developed and how you can get funding for these things. So it is not possible for a researcher to go from having an idea of like, you know, just doing a pilot feasibility study to say, okay, I'm going to do like a 500 patient study with a, a, a clinical endpoint. Like you're not going to get the funding to go to that level. So you have to start with a mechanism or a biomarker endpoint somewhere in the middle to say like, okay, we're seeing some changes and now we see the promise of maybe doing this as a bigger study and then get that kind of funding because it is not possible to just jump and go straight to that. Also, it might might be a waste if you've not like you know figured out what the true intervention is, how you're going to give it to patients. So a lot of it is getting figuring out what the intervention is. Is it feasible? Are most patients going to be able to do it? So our first pilot study was a feasibility design, just looking at BMI um, reduction and also um, compliance to the diet or adherence. 
Um, and just seeing that we were able to meet these guidelines, endpoints of a BMI reduction of more than 5% and a um, feasibility or a compliance for unprocessed plant foods of over 70%. Once we do that, then we know that what we've set out as our intervention is kind of feasible for patients to do and what is their long-term compliance with it? Do we need to make any tweaks? Our next study is looking at a biomarker endpoint in the microbiome. While yes, I understand that you know biomarker endpoints are not going to change the practice exactly for patients, but it's going to help us understand what is it that are the mechanisms around it? Are there immune changes? Are there bi microbiome changes? Are patients able to keep this going? And then we can say that, okay, what's the effect size we are seeing with this? And then now let's power the study to a clinical endpoint and do one which is on a much larger scale. But it has to be done stepwise. And because if you don't see, to... if you, I mean, if you don't see a change in the biomarker, you may say it's not worth going for a full scale study. Right, and it, it, that's that's what when we when we do. Um, uh, studies with drugs as well. We have phase one, phase two, phase three. We don't go straight to phase three and power it to an overall survival endpoint. We have right. to start somewhere earlier. And that's what I think people hold dietary trials to a higher standard than drug studies. Sometimes I feel like oncologists where they'll say, okay, um, you know, if you'll have a small, like you'll have a phase one study with um, a drug and it'll show like promising, like a high overall response rate and everybody will like, okay, great. Maybe we should start thinking about incorporating this into our practice or things like that. The moment you see a dietary study there, we're, okay, but this this can may not be true. Like this, this may just be chance or why this thing. And that is a, a good example for you of that is if you if you look at um, the CAR T study with uh, a myeloma, there was a CD19 um, targeted BC uh, CD19 targeted CAR T cell. The first patient or one of the first few patients that got treated um, had a really good response, and then that was. Uh, published as a case report in the New England Journal of Medicine. The same thing we would do if you find like a patient who made some dietary changes and had a remission or maybe even like slowed their progression and you submit that to a journal and say like, okay, we started to see it. Do you think that's going to be published in the no. same kind of high impact? No, no but no. that's because we'll say, okay, that's because maybe there was something else, maybe the treatment, the synergy with the treatment, maybe there, there, it was just their disease biology, like something else. But we are inherently skeptical to that, but we're not skeptical to if a drug does that, we're like, oh, wow, this is a new drug that we need to all- I mean, I think to. I think in all fairness, we should be skeptical with all. I, I agree I, I with agree you. With I agree with you. We should not be selectively skeptical. But I, I, I am. I, I do think being somewhat skeptical allows us to have critical appraisal of what's going on, For sure. right? I mean, if we're going to sure. take everything face value, it becomes an issue and a problem. But I want to talk about the BMI thing just for a second. I, I yeah. know you mentioned it's reduction of the BMI in 5%. Now, BMI is basically body mass index. It's a calculated mathematical formula that incorporates weight and height of the patient and you just plug the numbers and you get the BMI. And over 30 for listeners is considered obese. And there's an actual you know, CDC criterion of uh, all of that. But I have issues with BMI. So convince me because um, I could be super muscular. Now, I'm not saying I am, unfortunately, I try to work out, I'm not that muscular. <laughs> but you could be muscular and you have high weight. And, you know, I mean, and your BMI could be, uh, again, um, pretty high, but again, it doesn't really differentiate muscle from fat when it comes to the weight. That's one. Number two, we all know that things fluctuate, right? I mean, you could lose five pounds, gain five pounds. I mean, all of us have this like, you know, kind of, you know, um, zigzag type of thing in terms of the weight and, and the BMI. So to have the link between BMI and cancer, there's an assumption that the BMI is staying within a particular range for a particular period of time. And it ignores the fact that we really, throughout lifetime, we actually change, change our uh, body weight and, and all of that. So how do, you, how do you think about that in terms of when you look at the BMI as an endpoint? So there, there was just to add to that, there was one study actually in the myeloma looking at BMI uh, 
and the risk of developing myeloma. And they looked at BMI cycling, meaning this thing about like gaining weight, losing weight over a lifetime versus stable, elevated versus stable, this thing. And they showed that cycling of weight is actually bad or worse in terms of the risk to develop cancer, uh, myeloma. So yes, I'm not saying that, you know, the BMI cycling is what we want, but if we are able to see the weight loss and the sustained weight loss. So we we, we are, we, in our pilot study, these were MGUS or smoldering myeloma patients. So precursor to myeloma, they precancerous state. And in that situation, we know that patients with a BMI over 25 um, are twice as likely to progress to myeloma. There's already data on that. So what we were trying to do is help patients lose weight, maintain the weight loss, and see if we can alter the trajectory for progression or delay progression to myeloma. So in that situation, I think it made sense. And also BMI, the nice part about it is it's objective, right? Like you just calculate it, you have the height, you have the weight, and you calculate it. It's not subjective based on what a patient tells you or things like that. The disadvantage of, and, and the other advantage of BMI is that it is very widely applicable. You don't need imaging. You don't need any of that. You can just get it immediately on most patients. The downsides, which I agree with you, is that if a patient's very muscular, they could have a higher BMI. If they are um, uh, certain, you know, different races might have, males versus female might have. So there's a lot of differences in body composition that we don't um, fully understand. We just published a review article on body composition in JNCI's cancer spectrum. Um, and so in that, uh, you know, ideally we would like to have uh, imaging and look at body composition from that perspective. And we have in this study looked at imaging. We have not yet analyzed it, but we will be looking at imaging and changes in that too. Um, but I think that all the studies that have been done in terms of population and risk have just looked at overall BMI. And these same issues apply where there might be some patients who are muscular in that group or there might be things. But I think for the most but overall, it, it, is a, it is a good, simple tool to, to study or look at changes in a patient's uh, metabolism. Yeah, no, I mean, I, look, I agree with you that you need a tool. I just, I've, I've always struggled with the BMI. Uh, <clears throat> I never felt it reflects, like, you know, there are people, honestly, that I would meet and their BMI calculated would put them in the obesity category or yeah. like, you know, 29. And I'm like, I wouldn't call this person obese when I see like I wouldn't it's just the numbers suggest that so I I, yeah. I I admit I have my own bias about BMI because I just never felt it always reflects true obesity uh, but probably it's the best we have I don't know we have I mean we have a lot of other ways like DEXA scans CT scans PET scans but all of that requires like again um, doing a, 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 another invasive like not invasive but another test and so that could be one more barrier to studying it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be aiming for better ways to understand body composition. And, you know, there is a difference between visceral uh, adiposity versus subcutaneous adiposity and a um, lot of research going into understanding how those can play different roles. Um, there's also white adiposity, brown adiposity. So there's a lot of research into all of that happening. But I think that if we're just looking at a clinical endpoint, um, it doesn't mean that in all situations, the BMI is the right endpoint. But for this study, yeah. I think it made sense. And it also just shows the feasibility of the intervention because you're comparing the BMI to the patient's own BMI. So did, did the diet have a true metabolic change for these patients? And we only enroll patients with an elevated BMI. So on May 8, 2023, you wrote a, a viewpoint for JAMA and it's titled Personal and Planetary Health, The Connection with Dietary Choices. Tell me about that. Um, so uh, I think that when we think about diet, and as and it, this article we wrote was more targeted towards physicians or healthcare professionals, not just oncologists, but anybody who takes care of patients or in the field, but I think it applies even if a patient wanted to read it directly. But what we were interested in talking about is the dietary, the um, planetary impact of dietary um, choices. And so a lot of people are not aware of this, but what we put on our plate every day has a significant impact on our 
um, global warming in footprint in, if you would say. And so um, as, as oncologists and as even physicians, we are focused on only the health of the patients. And I, I agree the health is primary for us because that's our role. But I think that um, when, while we are helping the patients, we, it, it's also interesting to know that as patients eat healthier and move towards more plant-forward diets or plant-forward dietary patterns, they're also benefiting indirectly global warming or the planet with um, the re reduction in um, carbon dioxide equivalence. So carbon dioxide equivalence is a measure of the global warming potential of foods or things. And so if you look at one serving of beans, that is about less than one um, carbon dioxide equivalent per serving. If you look at one serving of beef, it's 1200 carbon dioxide equivalents per serving of beef. So, so you can see that the global warming potential of just one dietary swap in your plate leads to like a 1200 time difference just for that food group. And so plant forward diets are what's been talked about in the Eat Lancet Commission's report on planetary health, global warming, and a lot of guidelines are now including sustainability into food guidelines as well, because I think that we, as climate change is becoming more and more of an emergency, we can no longer ignore it. So this was a, a, a call or a, you know a, an appeal to physicians to understand that what yeah. we tell patients makes a difference, not just to that individual patient, but to the wider planet and community. So uh, um, I have a couple of questions and, and a couple of comments, but I want to start by telling you that sometimes nutrition science gets a lot of bad rap because, um, look, I mean, you're your own worst enemy, frankly. I mean, I, if I can tell you, I, I just don't have the energy to do this in terms of writing it, but you know how many articles were written about, for example, alcohol and cancer, alcohol and breast cancer. Alcohol, I mean, and you're talking from one glass of wine to two glasses of wine to three glasses of wine or mild, moderate, yeah. severe, and the impact, it's all over the place. Yeah. Coffee, coffee. I mean, how many times, you know, a cup of coffee is going to uh, eliminate cancer, a cup of coffee is going to increase cancer, uh, vitamin D. I mean, there's so many of these things yeah. out there. So people like me get to a point where like, you know, I'm not like, it, it's hard for me to read even an article about diet and cancer, to be honest. I definitely am a big fan of you and your research, but I, I want to bring it to you to tell you why people are so skeptical. Yeah. Because there's been so many, like, you know, how many articles have been written about coffee and cancer? Right? Yeah, so, so, so how do we, I guess my question to you is when you see this data on alcohol, on coffee, on uh, all of these things. What's your reaction? And and could you understand why people have grown to become very skeptical and sometimes dismissive? I totally get it. Um, I am not taking away from any of those issues that we see with association studies and a, a population studies where there is going to be that bias or some of these uh, confounders that we do see. Um, the challenge is, you know, trying to make meaning from uh, individuals. So I, I think like, don't lose the um, forest for the trees could be a good like analogy for it. It's like, if you look at each paper and you try to say, okay, this one says increase, this one says decrease, and I'm now lost in like what is right. Um, I, I agree that is going to be, but if you just look overall, um, as what are the general studies saying in a pattern? Like, I don't think we should be using epidemiologic studies to look at like one individual component or one thing and say, that means that we should change our diet. But we should look at overall, what are hundreds of studies saying in the same direction? Are they all mostly saying fruits are associated with reduced cancer and plant foods are? Or are they saying that, you know, eating more of a certain food is associated with an increased risk? And that's what I've seen from all of these studies. And I take home, I don't say that, okay, eat, drink more coffee because this one study says, or drink less coffee because this study says, and this one's associated with myeloma, and this one's associated with lymphoma. So lymphoma should have more coffee and myeloma should have less coffee. Like I think that when we go into that kind of granularity, it's kind of a wasted effort and it doesn't make sense. I think looking more at dietary patterns and what's consistent overall 
can help and empower people to say like, okay, overall, if I've shifted my diet towards eating more fiber-rich foods or plant-based foods, that could reduce my cancer risk overall. But that doesn't mean it's a cure for cancer or that it's going to fix everything, but it could just give you patterns in terms of what it is. And I think that's where the epidemiologic studies have shown these patterns. And we have data uh, which is why the American Institute of Cancer Research and World Cancer Research Fund would take these hundreds of epidemiologic studies and distill them down into what are the main overall findings. Talk about eating a diet high in uh, whole grains, fruits and vegetables, and low in processed and red meat, and um, avoiding you know alcohol or supplements, maintaining a healthy BMI, all of those things they bring up because it's an overall pattern that they see. So that's... But, 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 but patients are going to ask, you know, you get a patient in front of you, and I know you see mainly myeloma, but, you know, I mean, these are, these are from a patient perspective, a woman or a man, they're going to ask you like, hey, I mean, do I, can I, can I have wine? Can I have wine with dinner? Is there a limit? How many cups of coffee do I have a day? I mean, like, these are practical things. Yeah. How do you how do you answer them, or do you tell them like is there a particular resource, for example, on the web that is uh, uh, something that you really uh, value or you think is credible? Again, I'll come back to AICR or WCRF. They have a lot of information on individual food groups and how that might increase or decrease cancer risk, and also talk about it. So that's one really nice resource for cancer specifically. For alcohol, the data more recently has been that there is no safe limit for alcohol with cancer risk. So if I'm, if a patient's asking, yes, there might be one study, even in myeloma, there is one study that, um, you know, there's an association of like alcohol with reduced myeloma risk. But again, that's one study we have to look at the overall. And so I'm not going to tell a myeloma patient drink alcohol because that one population study showed that risk. But overall, what is the data showing me? Overall, alcohol is associated with increased cancer risk. So if, and a patient can, should be able to make their own decision so I won't say like, I have to tell every patient like, no, you can't have any alcohol or you shouldn't. But if they ask me or I'm telling them, I would say you could limit it and you have to decide what that limit is of how the risk and benefit plays into. So if we know true like effect sizes, we can tell patient like if, if, if you're going to drink one drink a week, it might increase your risk by X percent, like maybe 5%, and then they can decide if that 5% is enough for them to enjoy the pleasure of drinking or it's not, right? So that's some way in which we could be sharing it more objectively than to be saying to patients, uh, certain food groups like, okay, don't eat this or eat this. I think I focus on when I tell patients is more a general like, okay, get more fiber in your diet or more plant-based foods, but that's a very general kind of message than to say, okay, eat this specific food or eat that specific food. I don't know if you have investigated this, but if you haven't, I'm going to urge you to do that. And and I know that you uh, probably either read or uh, are in the process of reading my book, Toxic Exposure. I am, yes. And um, one of the things, obviously, the theme of the book is describing trials of Roundup um, yeah. uh, and cancer. And the main ingredients of Roundup is glyphosate. Yes. And the IARC, which is a division of the WHO, has classified glyphosate as a probable human carcinogen. Litigation trials ensued, and obviously uh, there are two sides of the story. Some yeah. people say glyphosate is not carcinogenics, others uh, do that. But um, regards of that piece, as you know, Roundup-ready seeds are available. These are seeds that are resistant to Roundup activity. So you're able to spray the Roundup on the crops and you're able, you know, and they, and this like, you know, you're talking soybean, alfalfa, corn, all of that stuff, right? Yeah. So, you know, uh, basically what that leads to is that a lot of the stuff that we actually have and are eating, they have Roundup in them pretty much. And, and some of this has been actually even published, uh, the presence of glyphosate in, in the urine or in breast milk and other uh, scenarios. Is this something within your research, trying to look at the impact of uh, pesticides that are in some of the food? Because some of the effect, right? If you're looking at the effect, some of it is the actual diet. But the yeah. other thing is, what is what are these crops being sprayed with? And is there a possibility? Like I said, I don't know if you're researching this, but I think at least as a consumer, I would say it's a, it's a relevant issue. 
So it's a great point. So there are two studies. I'm I'm not directly researching it because I think that for that you would again the only way to really study it is through population studies because it's very hard to know an individual situation unless you have a clear you know exposure that's very high and you could maybe say that this case could be related to that exposure as what you were already doing with your um, trials. Uh, but I think that. There was one study, the Nutrinet Sand study from uh, France, and that looks at organic food consumption and cancer risk. And in that study, there was a positive association where if you eat more organic foods, you have less risk of cancer. But we th th that association could also be that people who are eating organic foods are exercising more or eating more plant-based foods or eating healthier. And so it is not clear to me that that truly um, holds true. And I think other studies have not shown that same association. There is one study that it was published in 2012 in uh, food chemical toxicology. So it's, um, but it's a very interesting study because they looked at um, the, the, the pesticide, theoretical pesticide residues and calculated what would be the risk. And they said that the estimates that are that approximately 20,000 cancer cases per year could be prevented by increasing fruit and vegetable consumption, while up to 10 cancer cases per year could be caused by adding the pesticide consumption. So while, while patients can sometimes get worried and say like, okay, I am not going to eat fruits and vegetables because there is the pesticide contamination risk, the benefits of eating fruits and vegetables outweighs the risks of the pesticide consumption, I think. That's one thing too is you could, in some things where you think there's more risk of contamination, pick the organic kind if that is. But I don't think that everybody needs to buy everything organic because if they're doing that, one is it's going to be very expensive. Two is it's not going to be sustainable. And three is I don't know that it makes that much of a difference in the, in the large scheme of things. And last thing I would say is that if we are thinking about organic for uh, or thinking about the pesticide residue for us, there is the concept of bioaccumulation, right? So if it, just because you're eating meat doesn't mean that doesn't have the pesticide contamination because the animals are eating the feed that would also have the pesticide contamination. And there is a bioaccumulation where there's more actually could be in the meat theoretically than there would be in the plant food. So basically my summary is that I don't think, I think that Yes, in some situations, if you can find the organic tomato or certain food that you feel like you could buy it, but I think if you can't find organic and you, um, it's more important that you eat the tomato than not eat it because of the worry um, of it. You wrote uh, an article, I believe, and I think you tweeted something. I, it, it's possibly the about the dietary microbiome and plasma cell disorders. And I think yeah. I'm trying to remember which article you got a lot of heat on on Twitter. Now, I, you could tell that you get a lot of uh, heat on Twitter if you're pretty active, right? I mean, that's what's going on. Was that the article where you had some issues and arguments back and forth about, you know, a lot of this is not really um, true, or was it the JNCI article? I'm trying to remember which one. I think that... I or you get heat from every article you write. <laughs> I think it, 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 it does stir up debate and controversy or questions, but I think that the, the, there wasn't so much on this article as there was on just me sharing somebody else's article on um, diet and kidney disease than was on this one. So the one that we published was... In, in clinical cancer research is looking at how diet microbiome and outcomes in plasma in patients with myeloma on maintenance therapy. So myeloma patients got induction therapy plus minus transplant, and then they were on maintenance lenalidomide on a clinical trial, which was an observational clinical trial of lenalidomide maintenance. On that study, patients were asked to provide stool samples and fill out a dietary questionnaire. So they were observed like not just um, a standard of care, but on a trial, so very closely. We then had data on um, sustained MRD negativity means MRD negative or state of complete remission where we don't see disease, two time points one year apart. Then we correlated the microbiome changes 
to the long-term sustained MRD negativity. And what we saw is that if you had higher microbiome diversity, you are more likely to be sustained MRD negative. If you had higher, healthier bacteria, which are butyrate producers, you are more likely to be sustained MRD negative. And then we also did metabolomic analysis on the stool and looked at short-chain fatty acid levels. And if we had higher short-chain fatty acids, also there was an in, um, association with sustained MRD negativity. Then we looked at diet and we said, is diet associated or correlated with these microbiome changes and with sustained MRD negativity? And we looked at, a health, a, we had asked patients to fill out a food frequency questionnaire, and then we calculated a dietary score called the healthy eating index. And in that, there are different components in the score. And what we saw is that the component of healthier protein, meaning plant and seafood protein, was associated with higher butyrate levels and with also dietary flavon um, with uh, flavonoid intake. And flavonoid intake is foods that are, plant foods basically have flavonoids. Flavonoids come are phytochemicals. And we saw an association between the flavonoids and butyrate uh, uh, producers and butyrate concentrations. So what we, we said is that there is an association with diet, with the microbiome, and the microbiome with sustained MRD negativity. And there may be, this is a hypothesis generating kind of a paper where it's a small study looking at just associations, but we see an association with diet and microbiome and sustained MRD negativity. And we see this association even though it's a small study. So um, that means that, you know, yes, correlation doesn't mean causation. I, I know all of that, but I think that when we're starting to see some of these things, um, they are low risk interventions for patients to do if if they wanted to make changes and until we have a full randomized study around this yeah. uh, patients can make their own choice of whether they want to you know incorporate things early when they start seeing evidence all right so in the last segment i'm going to just uh, do what i call lightning rounds which means i'm going to ask you i'm going to pretend i'm asking you I'm, I'm in your clinic and i'm asking you a question pertaining to what do i do and you're going to tell me what to do, because I think I'm going to end up this conversation maybe realizing I can't do anything after I talk to you. I always get depressed, Ravi. You have to help me out a little bit here. So I'm here. I, I think uh, that's just let me say one thing. It's, it's the opposite of what a lot of patients say. Like when they hear it, they feel empowered. I, I feel like you're. Yes, yes, no, I get you. <laughs> But let's let's start by asking that you know you have a you you your answers could be yes you can with this limitation no you can't or I don't know okay so can I drink sparkling water I, I think you can I, I don't think there is evidence that I am aware of okay. can I have a steak it's your decision but there is evidence for um steak or red meat and processed meat. Processed meat is considered a group one carcinogen, meaning it's definitely carcinogenic for um, GI cancers, colorectal, um, uh, stomach cancer, pancreatic. And uh, IRC published this in Lancet Oncology in uh, 2015. And then red meat is a probable carcinogen, so most likely causes these increased risks. So, so and I there's not have a steak. I would not recommend it, but it is okay. a decision for a patient. Can I have French fries? I would not recommend it, but on a rare occasion again. So I have this 80-20 or rule kind of where I tell patients, like try to get 80% of your food from the healthy things that we are sure that we know are associated. So unprocessed plant food. And then the last 10 to 15% patients will mm. say, oh, I cannot give up something. I cannot give up. Uh, fries or I can't give up cheese or something, then you can do that. But that would be a more rare thing than a regular thing. Can I have ice cream? Same thing applies. It could. I, I, I don't think that it's a health food, but if mm. you wanted to, it could be a, a occasional indulgence. Can I... Um... And I also think it depends on what the comorbidities that patients have too, right? So if someone's an uncontrolled diabetic, I think that's yeah. a little different. Can I have coffee? 
Coffee is, I think, overall associated with healthy microbiome changes. So I, I, it depends on what you put in the coffee. Many people put a lot of sugar in their coffee. But if you're having black coffee, I think that's extremely Can healthy. Can I have tea? Same thing with tea. There's only some risk where green tea and bortezomib have uh, like a I, drug. I have a friend who likes gin and tonic. Can she or he have a gin and tonic? Same thing with alcohol, as I already mentioned, that there is no safe limit for alcohol, but it's again a decision for patients. I would always limit alcohol intake, but... Okay, here's our last uh, thing. Take me through your diet. What did you, what are you going to have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And that's my last question. Oh, wow, that's a, a good Yes, question. what did you have for breakfast early this morning? I, this so I usually for breakfast will either have a bowl of oats with uh, fruit and uh, seeds or nuts. That's usually, or I will have something where like it will be a multigrain, like a high fiber multigrain toast or bread. Eggs? Can we have eggs? You can again, but uh, it, 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 I I wouldn't say that like eggs is a fully a health food, but I won't say it's like the same risk category as red and processed meat. So okay. I, I think that so you had like it an depends also on the situation. So I think that in um, if somebody has advanced cardiac ca cardiovascular disease or things like the cholesterol burden from eggs could be much more of a factor mm -hmm. compared to if somebody doesn't. So but so so you had an oatmeal what you had all of oats. Yeah. Uh, so oatmeal with fruits, uh, that's what you had this morning. What are you going to have for lunch? I usually either have a bowl of whole grains with beans and rice or, or, or another grain like buckwheat or quinoa or barley. So you're very okay. simple. I don't have lunch usually. Uh, I like dried mango. Can I have dried mango? Yes, it's fruit. So that's good. But dried fruits tend to have a little higher sugar concentration. So mm. Not as great as um, uh, um, whole food, but it's still it's still it's still got like some of the antioxidants and stuff, so it's good. What are you having for dinner tonight? Haven't decided yet, but you usually I uh, you know I I like different foods and varieties, so I I do um, switch it up quite a bit. Uh, so more like are fish and where... fish and chicken type of thing. No, I don't eat fish or chicken, but that's just. Are you vegetarian? I'm vegan. Ah, okay, okay, but, you but know, I, I mean, you're not you're not saying that fish or chicken are not good. So fish, I think, is is associated with reduced risk of uh, cancer, in especially in myeloma too. But the interesting thing was the risk was like, I think one time per week was the lowest risk, and then higher consumption maybe a little increased risk. So I I don't know what that reason is for that change based on frequency but the only things i can suspect or um, talk about would be is that fish overall the healthy parts of it is the the omega-3 fatty acids vitamin d and healthy unsaturated fats but what has happened with a lot of fish and farming and things like that is the microplastic risk and the mercury and things like that so it's hard to balance those i would yeah. really think about it so my ask of you is that you should study the association when when you have time between Roundup and diet. I think you're going to find that truly, actually, there's a, you know, I did not go even in the book into all of the detail, yeah. but there's so much out there. And I think it'd be very interesting to see your observation. Anything else I should have asked you that I totally forgot uh, to ask you? We're at the top of the hour. Uh, just one thing is that, you know, often when I talk about plant-based diets or what our research is, a lot of oncologists and people who are reading this say, okay, you're telling everybody to go vegan and that may not be right for everybody. And I just want to clarify what I am not, and what I'm saying is that patients, and I think the benefit comes from eating 80 to 90% of your foods from unprocessed plant foods. And that last 10 or 20% could be whatever floats would be my steak and french floats. fries i like it so so it depends on what a person wants and and so i say like you can be whole food plant-based vegan vegetarian um mediterranean like whatever suits you but that that component the the benefit comes from that 80 to 90 percent dr irvi shah you're always welcome on healthcare unfiltered i really love talking to you i love discussing this and i look forward to having you again thank you so much for coming on healthcare unfiltered
Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support. Do not forget to let me know how I'm doing, and you can do that by sending me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. You can direct message me on Twitter at shadinabhan or on Instagram, shadi underscore healthcare unfiltered. Visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com and check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. And if you are an avid listener and supporter of this podcast, I will send you the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast t-shirt as a basically a gift from me and as a thank you for being a loyal listener or a guest. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Winston Churchill. Success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Until next time, take care.